0: you're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network.
1: Hello, and welcome to COVID-19, Update for Healthcare Professionals, Voices from the Frontlines podcast. Today's session is Implications for the Management of Maternity Patients. Today you'll hear the voices of Drs. Deborah Money, Jeanette Boyd, Regina Renner, Zoe Hodgson, and Melanie Basso. The recording date is April 7th, 2020. You may notice a few audio imperfections due to the live recording of this session. It was recorded remotely from the presenters' homes and without professional equipment. Thanks for joining us. Enjoy the podcast.
2: I would now like to invite each member of the panel to take a few minutes to introduce themselves to you, describe their current context of practice, and how COVID-19 has impacted it. Following that, I will be asking them all to respond to your questions. So let me start by passing it over to uh, Dr. Deb Money.
3: Um, thank you, Bob, and, and uh, good evening, everyone, uh, all the people virtually connecting in this space. Um, thank you for joining us. Uh, I, I'm the um, uh, executive vice dean of the Faculty of Medicine. and very pleased to participate in this. I'm also a professor in obstetrics and gynecology medicine and School of Population and Public Health, um, but I think for this particular purpose, I'm one of three reproductive infectious diseases specialists in the province that have been trying to um, synthesize some of the information that is coming out as rapid fire um, around uh, COVID-19 and pregnancy and uh, trying with many of, of you to understand it and apply it to practice in British Columbia. So, you know, I think everybody um, has been well aware with media and with other information coming at them, social media, regular TV, that we are in a really extraordinary circumstance. And um, every day, the statistics are, in many cases, very grim in other parts of the world. And our neighbors to the south in the United States are certainly um, probably seeing some of the worst of this. So we're close to one and a half million individuals worldwide, 82,000 deaths, um, over 12,000 in the United States, and nearly 400,000 cases. Canada is not as hard hit. Um, 17,000 plus um, in Canada, almost well, 17,800 with 3,700 plus deaths. But British Columbia has been faring better than the rest of the provinces. I don't think we need to sit on our laurels there, but we, we need to be grateful that we haven't been as hard hit yet. But I think preparedness is incredibly important. Um, so today's numbers are 1,219 um, with 138 hospitalizations and 68 in the ICU. But what are, none of those numbers tell us the impact in pregnancy. And one of the things that I've observed in my career through HIV, through SARS, through pandemic H1N1, and slightly unrelated situation with Zika um, that we, that often as we all respond collectively to pandemics um, the response of, oh, and what does it mean to pregnant women is often secondary. So I think for us um, on the panel, this is important and we need to try and glean from the limited uh, global literature, how to, how to plan for pregnancy. Um, unlike collective surgery, birth are going to continue to happen. We actually can't cancel them. Um, and uh, so we need to figure out how to how to do this in the best way to make sure that women and their infants who are um, not infected with COVID-19 but are in this pandemic are well uh, uh, treated and handled. And then in particular, obviously, uh, women who may have COVID-19 and, and how do we handle those. Uh, so we're we've been working hard on this and trying to to write guidelines, um, both provincially and nationally, and talking to international colleagues. Um, But we don't have all the answers yet, and I think we're all working at it from different lenses and different angles to try to do the best we can. Um, And we're also um, really trying to gather the data, provincially and nationally, on the Canadian experience. So that's been sort of my lens on this situation, um, but I'm really looking forward to this evening and hearing from others as to where they've been uh, working in this space and how it's been affecting them Um, and so what I'll do at this point, I think if Regina can unmute, I'd love to hand over to you to introduce yourself and say a little bit.
4: Thank you very much. Hi, my name is Regina Venner. For the people here who don't know me, I'm an obstetrician and gynecologist. I primarily have my clinical practice in Nanaimo on Vancouver Island Thank you very much for having me on this panel to report from the perspective of an obstetrician and gynecologist. One of my other hats is also that I am our medical lead and division head for maternity in the obstetrics piece, um, which has been a bit of a challenge or, or has caused a lot of work now with the COVID pandemic because there is so much new information and so many new changes that we have to consider as we're changing workflows. Um, I um, have structured my sort of five minutes here somewhat around the challenges that I have been definitely noticing, and I don't think I'm the only one. So we are in a very unknown and unfamiliar situation. There's rapid changes. It's extremely difficult to keep up on the information and on the situation. Um, It's unknown what number of patients under investigation or COVID positive patients we need to actually expect in our community, which makes planning more difficult. It is unknown how many of our healthcare colleagues might be affected and how small our call groups will ultimately get, which makes the whole planning of human resources more challenging. And one of the other aspects is that it's a bit unknown how tight the PPE might actually get, which makes planning even harder because we don't even really have all our facts to plan with. One of the other struggles has been information from the... BC level versus the health authority level versus the hospital and departmental level and whose decisions to follow and which decisions am I responsible for versus am I trusting that someone will tell me what to do. So in response, um, what we have done in, on Vancouver Island, but also specifically at Nanaimo Regional General Hospital, where I work from a hospital perspective, is we work as a multidisciplinary team with nurse representation, midwife representation, anesthesia, and pediatrics representation as well as the GPs who provide obstetrics care and the OBGYN. Um, we found it quite helpful to be connected and some of it was a little self-invited in other hospital temp- pandemic planning groups so that we don't have parallel silos of planning. We have weekly island-wide rounds. Um, I, many of us have been attending the BC Women's Rounds which have been weekly. We frequently meet as a team about twice a week currently. We frequently communicate almost daily within our own little department just to try to keep everyone updated. Um, One of the other response challenges I find sometimes is not to get frustrated if you thought you had a plan hashed out and then it turns out, no, not so much. You need to go back to your drawing board or you forgot to consider this or that. Um, And... One of the things in terms of the language as we talk to each other, but also as we try to put um, our workflows into writing has been to clearly indicate which care do we recommend for a healthy patient versus patients under investigation versus COVID positive patients, and not to get all muddled up in between the three groups. Um, The principles that we've been trying to implement locally is physical distancing. And we had a conversation earlier amongst our group here to not use the word social distancing as much as physical distancing. to cohort patients, uh, to cohort healthcare providers. Um, And I'll speak a little bit more to that as I'm going over the hospital and the office um, implementation changes we've made. Um, And then to be mindful of where we find good resources such as SOGC, the BC, um, CDC, um, as well as your local health authority intranet. And uh, definitely um, very helpful I find has been watching videos on donning and doffing, which is not as intuitive as one hopes it would be. So to speak a little bit more specific about the office, so I as an obstetrician gynecologist have my personal office as well. So there's been a huge transition to mostly telephone and telemedicine encounters for me personally at the moment, mostly over the phone, but certainly exploring video options as well. To consider doing some of this work from home to decrease my exposure to the office and the exposure of my colleagues to me in the office. Some of us have also tried to set up home offices for our medical office assistants by giving them cell phones and so forth so that they can work more from home. Um, We only um, have one obstetrician round on our hospital patients. And in the office, we would only see OB patients who intermittently have to be seen. And we found the WHO handout um, quite helpful in terms of how to space the visits, the in-person visits a bit more. Um, Coordinate shared visits, if you do shared care between midwives and and physicians. Um, And to coordinate NST diabetes clinic visits with our visits, so that we, again, decrease the number of in-person contact points with patients. Um, There's many, many more details, and if you have questions later, I'm happy to share more details with it. Um, In terms of the hospital, we've worked hard on a pandemic plan, and I would assume most of you who work in a hospital have done similar things. Um, a lot of it has been around workflows off again the healthy patient versus the patient under investigation or the COVID positive patient, where on perinatal would we cohort them, do we have nurses who we can cohort to them, Um, and do we have systems in place from a human resource perspective if we were to get short, how do we collapse our call groups to still have enough people there, and can we potentially have a physician or a midwife or or a GP who then would follow mostly the COVID patients, but those are still ongoing conversations we've had. We're not using Entonox anymore. We're having discussions around visitor policy. You can move where in the hospital, but also on perinatal. Um, we've done simulations, which have been very helpful to identify, especially the cesarean section piece of COVID positive patients, and to realize How can we make these flows happen? How do we get to our COVID-designated OR? Who needs to be in an N95 in the OR, including the pediatrician team, the anesthesia team, and the OBGYN team? Um, Those have all been things that have been very helpful for us to identify and then modify our approaches. And this is ongoing work. So I think I'll stop here, just being mindful of the time. Again, there's many, many more details we could talk about.
5: Thank you. And I'm going to hand over to Janet. Thanks, Regina. I'm Jeanette Boyd. I'm a
0: family physician in Nelson, B.C. I I work in a maternity care. My maternity role here is in a maternity care collaborative called Apple Tree Maternity, which is a shared care model with family physicians and midwives. Uh, But I also have some provincial roles with the G.P.S.C. Maternity Working Group, as well as the Rural Coordination Center, where I'm one of the uh, leads of the rural obstetrics network, with involvement with the rural surgical and obstetrics network, as well as the rural obstetrics maternity sustainability project. So, um, a lot of what I'm going to be talking about in my in my five minutes um, is specifically around my practice, but also bringing in some some other learnings from other family physicians across the province and how they've been adapting their practice to. Uh, to COVID, um, I'm kind of breaking it down a little bit around um, sort of thoughts around physical changes that needed to happen, process changes that needed to happen, and then some some more significant aspects around our interactions with patients and, and how to attend to their needs in a, in a in a meaningful way that still protects providers. So the 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 um physical changes that have happened, um, we went from really being a really lovely homey little clinic to a much more sterile. We got rid of all the toys, we got rid of all of the um, all of the books, we uh, got rid of all of our pillows. everything's wipeable, There's minimal amounts in our in our um, um, examination rooms. Um, we' made very specific requests to minimize the number of people who come in with our with our patients, um, in particular um, their children and if they're able to have their children um, not attend, um, we, we certainly um, request that. Um, and offering to bring in people virtually if they're wanting their, their partner or spouse, but, but obviously still trying to maintain that balance between um, wanting to be conscientious of, of the uh, physical distancing and, and self-isolation, but also meaning to involve everybody around with the care. So um, rapidly adapted to to the virtual virtualization of our care when possible and keeping our in-person care as safe as possible. Um, other, we were fortunate in that our clinic is designed that we, we could uh, very easily accommodate um, physical spacing. Other clinics have actually moved to um, a different site altogether for the maternity care. Um, in TRAIL, for example, their maternity, their maternity patient maternity clinic used to be included in the hospital in the prenatal unit. And they've actually moved off site now to um, maintain that, that integrity um, Uh, for their patients Um, the um, others have created a a physical space for for the maternity patients having a separate door where they're able to enter when you have that luxury other physical changes were dramatic change to our home birth supplies and how we package them how we transport them Um, it's gone from really lovely backpacks to um, wipeable Rubbermaid um, containers as well Um, so those were sort of some really key physical changes process changes Um, Meetings, 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 I'm sure all of us have been overwhelmed both um, at at the clinic level, um, but uh, a lot of us, um, I'm sure at all of you attending, um, are involved with various meetings at the clinic um, with your families as well and and levels of the division and health authorities, um, depending on on your goal. Um, We stopped all of our group visits, we we had a very strong um, group prenatal program. Uh, for For pre care as well as postpartum care, both mental health and, and breastfeeding, and all of those were stopped uh, in an effort to promote those, those self isolation and physical distancing um, and then uh, dramatic changes as well uh, posters on the on the wall, change in our phone message. Um, Added a script for MOAs after we found that people weren't always reading the posters um, and being really careful to make assumptions. Um, Dealing with populations with English as a second language is something that we're definitely challenged with about how to convey those questions in a meaningful way to keep everybody safe, including them. Um, Our patient-facing process changes, the biggest one was shifting from in-person visits to virtual visits, and and how to maintain that, um, that shift for from um, what I think all of us as maternity care providers are very good at is that very patient-oriented, patient and family-centered way of practicing. To a lot of the necessary COVID-related interventions and scenarios, which move us away from being more provider-centric in order to maintain safety both of the of the healthcare worker, but then also of the patients and of themselves. And that's been a a change that we've all been grappling with. Uh, the issues around PPE are. Um, Um, and how to ration that and and utilize it as as safely as possible has been really critical. Um, Dealing with the information overload um, and and ultimately uh, ensuring we're all on the same page in our communications with patients. The biggest changes are about how we need to be really proactive with our um, patient education and particularly around anticipatory guidance. Um, You know, this is still a remarkable and amazing moment for, for families that has been dramatically shifted and all of the things and resources and their, their plans and dreams are, are being impacted by how we're, we're needing to provide maternity care and that can't be under, under, under minimized. So normalization and validation of their feelings um being open and honest with what we know, but also really open and honest with what we know is going to be changing every day and our procedures and protocols will be changing every day and just providing that information ahead of time so they're not frustrated with, well, last week you said I could bring a doula with me and now you're telling me I can't. Um, or last week, um, you know, you're telling me it was safe and, and now you're telling me that maybe there's some, some other risk. Um, we really bring it back to the patient and, and allowing them to control what they can control, so what they can do to keep safe, re uh, reemphasizing what we're doing to keep them safe around their clinic procedures, minimizing inpatient things. Um, and what the hospital is doing to keep them safe as well, because a lot of women are expressing fear about going into the hospital at all and, and just reassuring them that everything is being done to minimize their, their risk there. Um, the change in visit policy also being needed, to, and that's a place where we can really go back to the normalization of birth. Um, you know, a lot of people are trained with that, you know, I need to be, be seeing somebody every two weeks later on and and those sorts of things, but just ensuring them that a lot can be done with virtual visits and that in-person visits will be done when appropriate and absolutely when needed. Um, And knowing the biggest thing is them knowing that they have a provider that they can trust so that they can contact um, and that they have providers that are going to be providing that stabilization as well as that timing of the what if, what if your site is closed? What if your providers are no longer available Because of illness and those sorts of things, the other really big challenge is ensuring nobody falls through the gaps with in-person visits. You were able to. There's a lot of things that you can sense around mood and disposition. We're in particular postpartum visits and how the baby's doing. That we're losing, so we're being much more proactive around um, uh, follow-up. Um, and ensuring that we're not relying on the patients to make appointments, that we are following up with them uh, according to protocols so been assigning um, cohorting patients to all of our providers there. Um, the conversations um, around consolidation and those sorts of things are, are really important and critical, and there's some really key rural components that I'm happy to speak to later, in particular around how um, a minimum number of providers in your small rural sites, with a lot of them who have um, uh, different roles and different hats, you know, family physicians may be providing maternity care one day, maybe doing OR assist, maybe working in the ER, maybe working as anesthesia, um, maybe providing pediatrics. So and all of those, you know, there's a minimum number of providers where if one or two go down, your whole service could be compromised. So just thinking about that as well. And so those are questions that may be brought in later on.
5: And I'm not sure that Zoe, who's next? Yeah, thank you, Jeanette. So much of what I was going to
6: say has been set by uh, Jeanette and Regina, but I will uh, try and bring a little bit of a midwifery lens to the discussion. I I am a midwife who practices in uh, downtown Vancouver, so an urban practice, um, offering deliveries at home, um, St. Paul's Hospital and BC Women's Hospital. Um, I just want to start by acknowledging the resilience and adaptability of my colleagues, both my midwifery colleagues and my interprofessional colleagues, and, and also um, just mentioned that I've been blown away by uh, volunteers who stepped up um, to help make uh, personal protective equipment, for particularly for the community setting. We all know about the shortage of uh, personal protective equipment, and that really impacts middlewives who are um, conducting visits and births in the community. Um, So I've just been amazed. Um, The shifts that we've made to our practice are very similar to those mentioned. And I think it's been a particularly big paradigm shift for BC midwives who are used to a relational model of care where we support our clients in making informed choices about their care and have longer appointments with a small team. Um, We've needed to rethink care in this uh, pandemic and the majority of our appointments are now um, conducted by phone or virtually. Um, we have fewer and shorter in-person appointments. Again, we're following a very similar schedule to that put forward by the World Health Organization, which is a total of eight in-person visits through the course of pregnancy. And We're also greatly reducing the number of our postpartum visits, um, but continuing on with our regular schedule, whether that be by phone or virtually. Um, one thing that we've done to try and uh, reduce traffic into the hospitals, and when I say we, I really mean our department heads who really stepped up to helping navigate this pandemic, is, is trying to collaborate uh, between practices or between practice teams. So where there are multiple teams in any given midwifery practice, one midwife is doing the postpartum rounds at that hospital, and where there's only one team in a practice that practice may be collaborating with another practice such that there's only one team from multiple practice seeing the postpartum clients. Um, I know that the measures to reduce traffic and the the degree of collaboration varies um, uh, by location in BC, and I'm just speaking to what's happening in Vancouver at the moment. Um, One thing that I think um, is reflected across the province is that there's been certainly more conversations about home birth and keeping people out of the hospital. Um, there has been a greater uptake of home birth in, in Vancouver, um, which raises issues about the shortage of personal protective equipment, um, having less control over the um, environment at home birth, and less control over the number of people, the support people at the birth, um, and the need to ask screening questions. Um, So needing to respect our boundaries as care providers while also providing the midwifery care and choice of birthplace settings that we all know and love as midwives. Um, Again, we've we've made measures which have already been mentioned about our administrative staff is working from home. Um, We're spacing our in-person appointments in clinic and vigorously cleaning our clinic and equipment between the in-person visits. Minimizing the number of people who come to any given appointment. Um, but all to say is that I think what we're doing in BC, and you know, we're very fortunate to have an integrated um, maternity service um, with much collaboration between providers. Um, I think we are in a position where we can potentially provide um, invaluable st- structure and precedent to other areas where perhaps um, the um, interprofessions don't work so closely together. Um, and so I think that's really all I've got to say just now. But how about I hand over to Melanie, and she can kind of wrap up the introduction so far. Thank you very much.
7: Thanks very much, Zoe. Um, uh, my name is Melanie Basso. I'm the senior, one of two senior practice leaders here at uh, BC Women's Hospital, and we're working in the Maternal-Newborn Program here been here many years and have lots of experience working in uh, the maternity care realm um, as a nurse. Um, I do have national experience as a leader with the Canadian Association of Perinatal and Women's Health Nurses and sit as a member on the Clinical Practice Committee where we were bravely trying to create guidelines for COVID patients um, for nurses um, and sharing that experience um, across the country. Um, I am the nursing representative on the Society of Obstetricians and Gynecologists of Canada Board of Directors. Um, I'm an alarming instructor, and I'm also a member of the Clinical Obstetrics Committee for SMPC as the RN representative, and I have no, no conflicts and nothing to disclose. I think in terms of my practice, I'm going to talk about it from two perspectives as nurse. Um, one as a nurse leader, and then one as maternity nurse. Um, uh, so, from my practice, um, I, in my usual practice, I'm a leader in development and revision of evidence-based interprofessional statistics policies and guidelines and practice changes. Um, sitting on the board gives me um, insights into practice changes that are coming down and looking at our own practices here so that we can um, keep things up to date um, here at Women's Hospital. My clinical practice is We develop individualized collaborative care plans for births for women with really complex uh, needs in their pregnancies and uh, work collaboratively with the interprofessional team in order to develop those uh, care plans. I think the biggest change in my practice since the COVID pandemic is that I used to have a myriad of different projects underway, um, lots of different uh, interprofessional groups working on um, different topics, postpartum hemorrhage, fetal health surveillance. And now, um, since this has happened, all we talk about is COVID pandemic, and all we talk about is developing the next protocol and what changed since yesterday, and um, God forbid we're looking at something that's illegal because uh, it's probably out of date and has changed. Um, So trying to manage that information, let alone watching the news and social media and whatnot, and, and Talking about it all day, and um, you know, it really does become um, something that you have to kind of try and get away from sometimes, just to uh, give yourself a little bit of a break and give yourself permission to to not always just think about this one topic that everybody needs you to be thinking about and developing resources for. I think that's one of the biggest challenges I've certainly had, and I have an amazing interprofessional team here. We work together. We have a dyad model. Um, I have a, um, a partner who is the uh, medical director for pediatrics and we co chair the newborn committee. So our responsibilities around the COVID documents was around care of the newborn. And uh, so we've been working diligently on those, developing those protocols. And I think it was one day when the recommendations changed three times about the testing for the newborn. So um, just trying to keep up, as I said. Uh, and also looking at uh, the differences, and it has been mentioned in the care for patients who are non-COVID and in the patients who are under investigation versus those who are actually positive. Um, and just trying to create the streams of care for those patients and also for the providers. Um, we, Somebody had mentioned talking about pandemic planning. We we work in a regional uh, center. Oh, not yet, not yet. Don't change the slide yet. Sorry. Uh, we work in regional centers where there's many maternity practices, and so looking at what is the best resources for those maternity practices. Given that we're a standalone maternity center, and so is it better for us to deliver all the maternity patients in the region, so that the general hospitals can deal with the patients who are really sick and freeing up those resources. So. Those are conversations that are being had at many different levels. Um, and really just, I think, in a respectful way about thinking about working together uh, to create this, uh, the response to our new reality. Uh, in my clinical work, I'm instead of meeting with patients and touring them and developing a relationship as you've talked about, now we're doing it over the phone and Skype. And, um, and so that, that personal connection is difficult I do feel strongly about not social distancing um, because people do need that, and especially pregnant women are anxious. And so, um, we as care providers really, really need to um, acknowledge that and uh, try and make them as comfortable as we can in this uh, in this new new environment. Um, I interviewed some of my maternity nursing colleagues and asked them about what their biggest challenges were since. Uh, since this whole uh, pandemic started. Um, one of the things that they really lament is this first picture here is, this is how you would be greeted when you came to the hospital, um, either in labor um, or with a concern for your pregnancy. You have a smiling nurse, you have uniforms on, um, you have a face. Um, you move to the second photo. So this is now what you see is um, providers in personal protective equipment with masks on, with heels on, with gloves on, with gowns on. Um, and so it's a difficult um, way to, to greet somebody at the door when they look like they're in house painting or something. I mean, it's, it's not a usual way of, of dressing at work. Um, the nurses really lament not being able to smile at the patient or have the patient see them smile. There's no facial reaction. Um, And so that's um, one of the the losses that they felt. The other uh, change that they felt was really important is that Prior to all of this, when somebody presented in our urgent care center for care, the first thing we asked them is, what brought you to the hospital today? Are you having contractions or how's the baby moving? Now we ask them if they have a fever or a cough, and and those screening questions are the first thing that we ask people. Um, And so we have to get that established first before we can then um, get on to actually providing the care to them. So that was something that um, nurses were really struggling with. Providing labor support, um, we're expected to maintain physical distancing, but labor support is all about back rubs and being in someone's face and helping them with their labor and that kind of thing. So nurses are really uh, struggling with, um, with that and no access to Entanox, which can often provide just that needed um, pain relief um, in an immediate way uh, for someone who's experiencing um, that kind of pain. For patients who require physical care, you can't just run in the room and start helping. Now physical care is actually delayed because you have to stop and put your gown on, and put your gloves on, and put your mask on. And so um, being able to go in and comfort someone or uh, provide some information to someone is delayed because of the need to put on the personal protective equipment. Physical distancing at work from colleagues in small spaces at nursing stations and whatnot um, is very difficult, um, and some people are better at it than others, but it is difficult to, to maintain that, that physical distance in the small spaces that we're working in. Nurses are really struggling, as been mentioned, about restricting visitors and patient family members who are wanting to be part of a birth experience. Nurses have identified that they have become part of the celebration for the birth in absence of other family members being able to be present there. And they're um, really taking joy in that, um, but wanting families obviously to be able to share that with their own family. Looking at the need for early discharge as soon as possible, getting patients out of hospital requires more support and follow-up in the community, and planning with our community provider colleagues, that what does that support look like? and then being able to provide cohort care to to patients that are going home who are COVID-positive. Keeping up with the vast amount of information, we've all talked about that, and the rapid change in practice. It's difficult for nurses who one day work in the urgent care center and tomorrow is in the OR because they need to learn a completely different way of donning and and, uh, practicing their personal protective equipment and what the rules are. Um, Or if, God forbid, they go off for five days in a row and come back and everything's different. So it's it's a lot of anxiety. Um, Not sure what's going to be happening when they're showing up on the units for work um, every day. So nurses are feeling anxious for their patients. They're feeling anxious for themselves and keeping themselves and their families safe. And... They also identified the concern for what, how the asymptomatic patients are presenting in this in COVID-positive pandemic. So I think that I'm going to stop there, and I'll I'll carry on
5: with my other bit um, at the end. Thank you. Let me um, thank all of you uh, for sharing. You
2: know the profound impacts. Uh, On your different contexts of practice, and and, um, you're obviously very highly informed uh, and and thoughtful about all of that, and um, and, um, so as we proceed now, we we have many, many questions that I'm hoping you'll be able to answer uh, from our audience. Um, So the the first one uh, is, is COVID during pregnancy associated with fetal abnormality or pregnancy loss? Deb, would you like to take that or decide who sure. would take it?
3: Sure, ha- happy to take it, and, and we may need to figure out how we all put our hands up for answering here, but, you know, um, uh, we don't have any data at all, although it's limited, to suggest that the coronavirus um, crosses the placenta, and therefore, um, there doesn't appear to be any evidence that it causes fetal malformations. Um and uh, w- what we do recognize that if a woman becomes critically ill um, with severe version of COVID, that that could adversely affect the pregnancy, but not in a direct viral way, the way other congenital infections do. So, so we don't think that that's the case. And in terms of increased rates of miscarriage, the data there is so limited that I don't think we can genuinely answer it. Although, again, I think it's likely not uh, going to be a major contributor there.
2: Thanks, Deb. The next question is, are pregnant or postpartum women considered to be immunocompromised and therefore an at-risk population? And a, a similar question about newborns as well.
3: I, I want to keep dominating, but if you want to jump in. Um, you know the The term immune compromised in pregnancy always troubles me a little bit, and I'd be interested in other people's perspective. I actually um, use the word immune modulated or or, or changed immune response. Um, the the immune response in a woman who is pregnant is altered physiologically so that they can tolerate the fetus and not reject the fetus as other. But in many many circumstances, they mount a very very good immune response and can actually handle many infections quite well. There are some examples of exceptions to that, and certainly we do see problems with things like pandemic uh, H1N1, where women were much uh, worse off. Um, But they're not immune compromised in the sense of a person on immunosuppressive drugs that's got a transplant or something. They are much more competent than that. Um, So it's just a different immune response, and we seem to see that they seem to be handling uh, this as well as other adults, which doesn't mean they can't get into trouble, but um, not worse than other adults of common age.
5: And for newborns, does
3: anybody want to feel, feel the newborn? You um, know, <laughs> you're probably better at the newborn. Yeah, newborn. <laughs> I,
0: and, you know, and, and I think I think the information is is also um, I still in transition. Um, you know, at, at this point, there does not seem to be, um, and I. Things could have changed um, in, the, in that small period of time since I last checked. Um, there does not seem to be much evidence of, of vertical transmission. Um, it isn't clear exactly what the evidence is right now at this point or or the impact on, on newborns if their mother is COVID positive uh, and symptomatic during that immediate postpartum period and, and what protection they may have from, from breastfeeding and, and what impact, if any, um, doing um, uh, separating mom from babe, um, which we're trying to avoid, um, or instituting measures such as mom wearing a mask um, and um, washing her hands vigilantly and washing her breasts prior to to breastfeeding. What sort of impact that would that would have? Um, so I, I think I think we you know try to preserve the mother baby diet as much as we can and be really close and vigilant in regards to um, monitoring those uh, those newborns of uh, moms who are COVID positive. Um, In particular, if they they are having no no signs and symptoms at the the time of discharge, uh, but really close follow-up with a low threshold for further assessment and testing um, is indicated if they're showing any sorts of those temperature instabilities, Um, there's a really good website. So on the BC CDC um, does have um, a good um, one pager on signs and symptoms to look for in the newborn that would rec- would be um, suggestive of a further assessment and, and potential hospital admission that I would uh, suggest people go to and I can provide those those links afterwards
2: too. Thank you, Devin. We, we will send those links out to everybody on who's uh, signed up for tonight. And I'll just remind everyone too that we are gonna have a webinar a week this Thursday on the uh, implications for pediatrics with with COVID-19, and we will have a neonatologist as part of that panel. Certainly we can address this question again. Thank you. Um, Next question is, um, um, I think, relates to to the uh, WHO um, uh, schedule. Uh, There's some conflict about how to balance virtual visits and pregnancy with actual physical visits. Any comments on this? Maybe various members of the panel can talk about it from their perspectives, uh, perhaps Jeanette and Zoe could, could address that. I wanna, you want to start, Jeanette, since you're there?
0: Sure, I'll, I'll, I'll start in, and I think we'll all have different perspectives. Um, my Our approach uh, as a clinic has been um, the WHO guidelines are the minimum recommended, um, and it doesn't mean that those are what you should do. It needs to be adapted both to the patients as well as your community, as well as to where in the in the pandemic your community is, and if you're needing, I know how much you're needing to preserve that. Um, I think the important thing to emphasize is if a patient. If doing an in-person exam is going to change your management, then you should do everything you can to facilitate an in-person examination. Um, and the flip side of that is that pregnancy is something that is a totally, you know, usually is normal, and we can reassure our patients that a lot can be done with virtual visits, and I think we can, we can do a lot more in terms of a lot of the informed choice conversations. Um, we could um, share resources. We could share videos. There, there's so much we can do around that, that translation of information for some of those, those conversations that take longer and really minimize the in-person visits, but it takes a lot of time to be able to do that, and unfortunately for family physicians, the care models, even with virtual visits, don't allow for that amount of time that it takes to um, provide the coaching that women need to feel reassured with the changes in the change visit protocols, and ultimately it is reassurance that, you know, these are the minimums. If you require an in-person visit because it's going to change management or it's going to change assessments, then that will be provided for you in a way that is as safe as possible, both for the patient and for the
6: family.
2: Jeanette, uh, Zoe, do you want to comment?
6: Yeah, sure. I mean, I I agree with what Jeanette had to say. I think many – we're being creative in the way that we do visits, and I think many midwifery clinics are spending some time – phoning their clients prior to their scheduled appointment and having the full amount of time allotted to a virtual appointment or an appointment on the phone, and then following that up with a quick 15-minute clinical assessment the following day. I think one thing that um, we feel um, can't quite be um, reduced down to just a few visits is the postpartum care. So um, the evidence says that uh, early postpartum assistance with breastfeeding um, and the support provided through breastfeeding, which to some extent can be done uh, virtually, but there's also quite a lot of hands-on support and and weighing of babies. So I think um, we have been doing more um, postpartum than perhaps um, would be recommended in terms of like trying to minimize the visits, but we, we see ourselves as being a... Unique such that we have the ability and the flexibility to offer people visits when the alternative would perhaps involve them going to a facility where there's multiple people and thereby putting themselves and their baby at more risk.
2: Thank you, and, and Regina, do you want
4: to? Yeah, comment? just to. To add on to that, so my understanding of the WHO model is that it's primarily intended for low-risk pregnancy, so I completely concur this has to be adapted to the individual setting, to the individual patient needs. I think one of the things where we can be mindful and creative around is how do we space the visits that we have in person? Maybe that shouldn't be the day right after they had their their anatomy ultrasound anyway, because we've just... Check the fetal heart tone, we can follow up for that visit over the phone and rather see them in person a couple of weeks later when we didn't have another another way of assessing fetal heart tones or other well-being. Another way how we've become um, quite mindful is around diabetes clinic visits or non-stress tests if they were to happen, which then could take care of taking a blood pressure at the same time or asking the diabetes clinic nurse to also get heart tones so that, again, you'd limit the number of in-person contacts and can do a lot more over the phone. And same with shared care. If I have a patient in shared care between the midwife and myself, we shouldn't see the patient within a week's time. That's, that's I think, not, not, my, not meaningful use then. And that takes time to organize. So
5: you're all being yeah. very
2: practical. And sorry, go on.
6: I was just going to say, I, I should also mention that I have a, I'm the vice president of the College of Midwives of BC, which the mandate of the college is to protect the public. And it's because of the the need to be adaptive to the needs of our individual clients that the College of Midwives have basically said, do what you need to do. And they haven't set a minimum. They haven't set um, anything with regards to um, the scheduling of visits. And it's very much left up to the care provider to determine who needs to be seen and how often, but they have said absolutely you can be a flexible in your approach to care.
2: So I, I think what you've all said is that you're, you're, you've changed the way you do things based on what seems to make sense. It's practical, making sure you're giving the best care. And, and this is, you know, you're all adapting and there's no necessarily a right answer, but you're trying to do the best you can. And, and perhaps as things are changing rapidly too, you might change how your practice is, you know, based on what happens in the next few days or a few weeks. So thank you for sharing your approaches. Um, the, the next question is, um, what should we counsel women who are trying to conceive? Should they consider delaying until the COVID pandemic settles? Who would like to take that one on?
7: I would just like to make a comment that I think there's a lot of conceptions happening with all the self-isolation that has, is happening. And that uh, I think come December, we're gonna be very busy in our maternity unit. So um, I'll let someone else answer the
4: question. Yeah, I'm happy to answer some of that question. To my knowledge, there is no recommendation per se coming from SOGC or another society that you should delay getting pregnant. Having said that, um, all the infertility treatment essentially has stopped at the moment when it comes to intrauterine inseminations or IVF. I'm not entirely certain how much, to which degree, they're still prescribing of ovulation induction occurring. Um, I've had this conversation today with at least three different patients, and I think a lot of it comes down to informed decision-making again. So what I've been telling my patients is, yes, there's no clear recommendation at the same time. You need to be aware that if you were to um, get pregnant at this point, this will mean you need more access to health care either if the pregnancy continues or if you, for example, experience a miscarriage, which could come at risk to you and also has an impact on what the healthcare system can provide at the moment, then you should consider whether that is worth it to you or if you'd rather delay. And I think that is especially more important for women who know already that they would be a high-risk pregnancy due to medical comorbidities. But I, I have admitted that I might be a little um, biased towards being very cautious towards that. I I would like to use that as an opportunity, though, also to, because there was this comment, are more people going to get pregnant? So there's all sorts of epidemiological thoughts around this. Are we going to see more deliveries, for example? Are we also going to see more abortions? Because there's presumably also a much higher rate of unintended pregnancies in this context. Or women who initially had a desired pregnancy, but in the context of COVID, no longer feel comfortable continuing the pregnancy, which I've definitely heard from some of my colleagues as well. And... um, there, is, there has been um, statements from societies outside of Canada, but I'm um, part of a group who's working with SOGC to come up with a similar statement around um, making sure that miscarriage management and induced abortion management is considered an essential service that has to continue within, COVID, um, within the COVID pandemic and how that is sort of a whole separate arm that has its own challenges. But I think that's something important to remember as well.
2: Does anyone else want to comment?
0: A, a quick addition uh, around um, the the anticipated rise in, in, in pregnancies is, is also the importance of maintaining access to um, uh, contraception. Um, so I really like that is one of the main things that we're, we're talking to women about as part of their postpartum planning. Um, there is, you know, consultation around the possible role for doing IUD insertions at time of delivery. Um, IUD clinics were were originally paused in our community but are now being reopened as an, as an essential service. Um, ultimately, obviously, with all of the pre-screening questions and, and minimizing exposure, but um, it you know it is it is critical in, in these times that that women have access to that as a resource.
5: Thank you. Uh, the, the next
2: question is about PPE, and I, all of you have, have talked about this a bit and, and, and how it's affecting you in your context. But so this is just asked me for a little bit more detail. Um, what kind of PPD, PPE rather should healthcare professionals where for vaginal deliveries and then further what about for cesarean sections which I know will be quite a different answer probably but we will start with vaginal deliveries and just um, who'd like to take that on and maybe you're doing it a little differently but probably very similarly in many ways too uh, well I could talk about it from uh, from a droplet and
7: content uh, precautions perspective in that um, N95 masks are not required for uh, vaginal deliveries. Um, There are recommendations around eye protection, so having a face... And you're talking
0: specifically around COVID positive or COVID suspect women?
7: I am. Yes. Yes. Sorry, thank you. Yes, not all vaginal deliveries. I think that's the thing is that we get so focused on thinking about COVID positive women that we need to remember that we need to preface our remarks by saying "This this is how things have changed. Um, and so, yes, wearing a face mask with a, a, a eye protection, um, wearing gloves and a gown, and um, and whatnot, uh, which is different from the recommendations around severe infection. Um, and Deb, probably that's that's if you you can add and and uh,
3: complete that. Sure, uh, you know this has been a a topic of constant conversation just about every day since this whole pandemic hit, and. And evolving with our understanding of the transmissibility of this virus, Um, I think for starters, we've had a bit of a slide in our practices around blood and body fluid precautions, which are standard precautions for any birth, and I think are important for the protection of the care provider, particularly the quote end of the bed care provider in a vaginal delivery and. No, you know, when I trained back in the dark ages, so that was the standard. And then what tended to happen to demedicalize the birth, um, that practice has, has slipped. And I think this has been a reminder that protecting the care provider from transmissible agents of whatever kind in a, in a birth process that is certainly a blood and body fluid um, contamination risk is number one sort of base priority. And then what we've understood is that this virus is almost exclusively uh, a droplet and contact transmissible virus. So it transmits like the common cold, like influenza. It does not transmit like um, chickenpox or measles or smallpox where um, there's small aerosolized particles. So that's been discussed round and round and round. And so droplet and contact precautions are um, mass or eye protection um, gown and gloves uh, as appropriate. And so for any um, general uh, contact with, uh, close contact with a a patient, be it um, uh, in a delivery room or whatever, those are the standard precautions. Uh, So then the question becomes in a hospital setting, are you able to distinguish the known COVID and COVID under um, investigation versus the uh, woman that doesn't at the moment have symptoms, but if there's high community spread, could she be pre-symptomatic? And so we certainly, I think it's generally accepted that in the day or two prior to developing symptoms, you likely are quite, uh, you're infectious. And then there's a whole other debate around how uh, common completely asymptomatic transmission is, and that one's a really tough one to answer. Um, But... For the most part, uh, I think we're going with um, uh, basically standard droplet and contact precautions for uh, deliveries. Then the cesarean section debate has not been resolved, and I've been actively involved in it. I was on a call with Ontario today where they are grappling with this decision as well. And um, the challenge of cesarean section is if you're having a regional anesthetic and you're having an operation without an intubation, it's droplet and contact precautions. The debate is, in the 3 to 5% of cases where there's a conversion to a general anesthetic and you have to do an intubation, do you have time for the conversion to the N95, which is required for an intubation, which is an aerosolizing procedure? So we are in the throes of finalizing those recommendations, and I won't be able to share them. Hopefully, by the end of the week, they will be finalized, but that's the underpinning conversation around that. But if you are having a GA with a cesarean section, perhaps it's a crash cesarean section, then that is definitely an N95 requiring. And that's where the surgical recommendations have gone in the non-sustetrical arena. Don't know if anyone else has any comments on the. On the challenges of all of that. I, I really appreciated
0: you you highlighting um, that full PPE is actually considered standard of practice for a vaginal birth for the provider at the end of the bed because I, I think when those guidelines came out it was based upon standards of practice but we all, all of us providers, forgot about those standards of practice um, and and sort of we're wondering why do we have to do that for uh, for somebody who's asymptomatic and and so knowing that that was standard of practice and keeping it back around protecting the team so we can continue to give good, appropriate, safe care and keep the team as resilient as possible so we can continue to be as patient-centered when we're able to um, has been really helpful, um, communicating that amongst the team members um, for that. And also, again, it speaks to the anticipatory guidance um, that for of your patients. So, so prepare them that they will, when they go to the hospital for their birth delivery, when they do have women, Um, Their midwives coming to their home birth, they will be wearing full PPE, and that is to protect everybody, both them as as well as the care providers so we can continue to give good care. Um, A a workaround around the not smiling. As I've seen, people get laminated pictures of themselves smiling that they put on on the outside of their their, um, PPE gowns, which uh, which is lovely, I think, as a a way to try to uh, go around that.
5: Thank you. So, did you want to add anything to that from a delivery perspective? No, not really.
6: I mean, I can only echo what's already been said. And I think one okay. of the things that has been quite hard to swallow by some of the midwives is that um, given the desire to avoid um, caesareans or the use of general anesthesia, is that we've been advised that if our client is leaning towards an epidural, have them consider that perhaps at an earlier stage of their labor, um, so that there's ample time to get them comfortable, um, which has been a little bit, again, of a, a paradigm shift for midwives who who usually work with their clients uh, for a long time before um, an epidural is brought on board. Uh, like sometimes. I mean, sometimes our clients will elect to have an epidural um, as soon as they become active.
5: Thank you. The, the next
2: question um, and by the way we're we're kind of at the one hour mark here but but um, for those who didn't listen at the beginning, the panelists timely agreed to stay an extra half an hour, so we will carry on now for another thirty minutes trying to answer uh, your questions because there are so many more questions I don't think we're going to get to all of them, but we'll do the best we can in the next thirty minutes the um next one is um about uh, work and um and the impact of being pregnant and working so one question is, uh, should pregnant women be recommended to be off work or not be working on the front lines, I guess, where they might be exposed to COVID, I think is, is the concern. Um, and, um, and if you had a, a, a patient that wanted to get time off is asking you, you know, uh, can I have some sort of note or um, to say I shouldn't be working because I could be exposed, how would, how would you deal with that? Maybe I'll start with um Jeanette, do you want to take that on? I hope it's a common family doctor thing
0: it is a common family doctor thing um and it's very challenging um, i mean I, I mean one of the the most common ones is, is healthcare workers um you know, and nurses in in particular physicians as well um and, and to the point where there was um, you know, um i think it came from b c c d c um that you know it, it isn't uh it isn't They do. There isn't the perceived need that. Um, healthcare workers need to be um, off work based upon um, the COVID, current COVID pandemic if they're if they're in a, a low risk pregnancy. Um, so, so basically, the fact that it's COVID doesn't, doesn't change it. And you would you know make those recommendations to be off work or not according to how you would outside of, of COVID for low risk pregnancies. Um, and it, it certainly is is challenging um, trying to address all that fear um, and because there are a lot of things they don't have any control over um, and the impact of anxiety. Anxiety and their and their capacity to function at work in the context of that anxiety and what that anxiety then contributes to to their their labor and delivery and and long term effects and we all know about trauma informed care and it is a challenging conversation and it comes down case by case you you can you know quote the evidence you can. Um, I quote the recommendations and guidelines, and then it, it becomes that conversation uh, one-on-one, and hopefully you've been able to develop that that trust and find something that is that meets the, the patient's needs and try to do everything you can to, to relay those, those fears they may have and, and make that clinical judgment on a case-by-case basis.
2: Thanks, Jeanette. Does anyone want to add to the good family doctor's response?
7: Well, I, I think from our perspective, with kids being home from school, there's been a lot of challenges with finding childcare, and so um, pregnant women, pregnant nurses wanting time off, we've seen we've seen that request come. Uh, I think with a dual uh, need for solving other problems at home, but um, I certainly agree with Jeanette's
5: top words. Thank you.
0: We're
3: we'll to the next question. Oh, no, I, I want to hear what Deborah has to say. Okay. Sorry, I didn't Certainly. unmute myself there. <laughs> okay, please go ahead, um, Deborah. Well, I, it's just, I just thought I would add a little bit to this. Um, it's a tough one. Um, I think there's this sort of dispassionate look at the data, which seems to suggest that, um, that women who are pregnant and otherwise well don't have a higher risk of having complications. So that's... Sort of good news if the woman needs to work for maintaining income and has a job in the front lines that she can take or um, works in an essential service so I think we wanted to be clear about that and permissive of, of being able to work if, if, if the woman wishes to and is able to now that doesn't mean that if you're you're doing um, shift allocation in an acute care hospital and you have an option to put a pregnant woman on the Sickest COVID patient versus somewhere else. You might not. You might choose to do that in a humane and reasonable way. Um, but we, the workforce in uh, healthcare provision and essential services, is heavily dominated by women. And um, I think we have to be careful at making sort of motherhood statements, saying, "Oh, she's pregnant. She must be off work." And then we put swaths of women off work um, who are not who, who are capable of working. Um, That doesn't preclude the individual scenario that Jeanette's talking about where um, it's really um, traumatizing, it's really difficult for a pregnant woman to work with the anxiety of a COVID environment, and that may be a very legitimate reason for signing a a note to have someone off or there may be other extenuating circumstances. But it's that balance between um, trying to look at the evidence, trying to make sure it's permissive for women who can and wish to work, and then looking at a situation where maybe it's not good for her as an individual.
5: Thank you for
2: walking us through how one might deal with that tough situation. Um, Next question is um, kind of interesting. Does a COVID-19 positive woman aerosolize the virus during the pushing stage of labor with the Valsalva maneuver? Who would like to take that one on? I guess that refers to, would you want to protect yourself with an N95 mask um, at that point in managing the labor? Um,
3: so I'm Deb, happy you to wanna? start. Um, yeah. Other folks can come in. You know, there has been a lot of discussion about that, and I think there's absolutely no data that is substantiated that says that people can create small particle aerosols with coughing or Screaming or whatever may happen in the context of a labor, um, it really has to be a mechanical event, like um, an a intubation type event, to create the small particle aerosols. Now that doesn't. Now what we are suggesting, though, is that somebody is perhaps COVID or in a high or the peak of the pandemic, and you don't know who's asymptomatic, that if a woman is creating a lot of moisture, droplet sharing, that asking her uh, to wear a mask for just a physical barrier is reasonable, but there's no data to suggest that persons in the room should be innocent, droplet, and uh, contact caution protected.
2: Okay, thank you Deb. Um, uh, here's a question about uh, allowing or refusing partners to be present in labor. I, I know that um, that was addressed, I think, by Jeanette that, that uh, partners were being allowed in, but maybe others have other opinions. And, it, it, this, and this comment was that it, it, in a hospital, um, the partner was, had lied about their symptoms. They were, they were, I guess they were symptomatic for, for COVID um, and, um, and were then allowed in, in, in with their partner. So what, what are your thoughts about managing that situation, about a partner being present? Uh, do you do screen, I guess, would you screen the partner and, you know, they could be asymptomatic and still be potentially spreading. So what's your approach to that situation?
7: Um, well, I can start and talk about what, what we're doing. Is so we're screening all patients and all partners um, who are coming into the hospital. Uh, we have a two-part form. Uh, we are limiting and restricting to one uh, support person for somebody in labor that is separate from a doula. Um, We do expect, um, it's very difficult to have the one rule, um, but if the partner is symptomatic or sick, we do not really want them in the hospital, we we would ask them to leave and go home. Um, We have asked women not to switch out their support person, so whoever comes with them should stay with them. Um,
5: But if that support person gets sick, then we would want them to leave and then they would have a new person come in. Does anyone want to add
2: to that? Thank you. you.
4: Yeah, that is the same thing that we've done um, in Nanaimo and I think pretty much all across Vancouver Island. Um, One of the more complicated discussions was around what if a woman is under investigation for COVID or has COVID, can she have a partner? And my understanding is after we had some back and forth that we're actually not allowed to allow a partner in, meaning if you are COVID positive, you will not have any support person at your delivery. Um, that's where things are at the moment for us. Okay,
5: thank you. Here,
2: here's a question, uh, something I'm not aware sorry. of. There's, there are several. Uh, there's, there's a add.
6: Go ahead.
0: Yeah, sorry. The, the other part of that that question was the, the fact that that with those measures in place, which are appropriate, um, there is this risk that that partners will lie, and ultimately. Um, undermine the protection protective measures for health care providers and, and other patients within within the hospital um, and that then again that is really where where that patient education comes in the anticipatory guidance having these conversations about why those are in place trying to mitigate their fears around support so i mean i mean, if, I, I mean like, like the implications of that is that the father's not going to be present for the birth of their child and that is huge and significant and it's important to have that broader conversation in the context of of the greater good and, and ways you can you could try to mitigate that that went through it it's never gonna be the same, it's never gonna encounter um overcome that, but you know that virtual virtual opportunity is trying to do everything to decrease those barriers and emphasizing the importance and, and the consistent messaging as well. Um, you know, acknowledging and validating is key and critical. Um some health authorities do have that that really clear protocols and I again I think it can also come down to case by case Uh, you know certainly I think the the symptomatic person is is fairly fairly clear but um, allowing another person who doesn't live with with the with the COVID positive mom or or um, a mom who's symptomatic uh, who could be a support Um, might be something to consider Um, and I also think there is a really clear role then for healthcare providers to be able to step up to provide that support in a meaningful way as well. So it is a a very difficult and complex ethical conversation for certain that I'm uh, just as as an additional part of that uh, the, the guidelines as they're being produced are being produced with that COVID safety factor being first and foremost and with each additional iteration those additional risk factors around the impact of not having a support person are going to be introduced and, and nuanced with each new iteration so things ultimately will change and I think will change as well um, as this is my might me as an individual as PPE perhaps hopefully it becomes more available um, but um, those broader considerations around holistic risk assessment will be considered uh, with later iterations as more information becomes available
5: Thank you. Um, this is a question about using an app to allow
2: patients to check their own fetal heart rate. Um, uh, I guess I guess with their their iPhone or or, or um, smartphone,
5: um, is that something anyone has got experience with, and how accurate they might be? For their own heart rate, yes, but not for fetal heart rate. I haven't heard of an
0: app. Um, I, certainly, um, Dopplers are, are becoming more and more, and more available and, and less expensive, and a lot of uh, families are even outside of COVID where we're choosing to, to utilize that. But I haven't heard of a, an app, and now I'm going to do a quick Google because that would be amazing and fascinating if that's possible.
5: So no one else is aware of, of, an, of an app for fetal heart rate. Okay.
2: Okay. Um, We'll have to look that one up, like you said. Um, This one uh, goes back to using uh, nitrous oxide for any patient in labor. Um, Would you say there's ever, ever an indication now to use it because of the risk of the viral shedding? Again, for us at
5: least.
4: It has been a very general approach that there is no nitrous oxide on the floor, and partly it has to do with the fact that we think there might be asymptomatic COVID-positive patients, so it's really just this additional risk for um, infection. So for us, it's a pretty clear no on an on a, um, island-wide level, on health authority level.
3: I think it's pretty much province-wide, actually, um, it, just because of the, the inability to uh, decrease that aerosolization and the ability to clean between. So it's just not a device in this context that's safe, and it probably won't come back until we're well through this pandemic.
5: Here's
2: a, here's a very practical question. Um, what should we counsel postpartum women, and, and obviously with their newborns, as far as physical distancing and for how long, in particular in between others in the household, such
5: as grandparents, and obviously the families want to get together, what do you counsel them in terms of approaching that? And again, those who are not in the household but may want to visit or maybe
2: part of the family or close as grandparents or others.
3: Well, I would say, listen to Dr. Bonnie Henry's daily recommendations. You know, as, as emotional as a, as a newborn scenario is, um, they are not less uh, likely to transmit this virus than anyone else, and there's often multi-generational elements to this family grouping. So I think, I think people are going to have to take the day-by-day, week-by-week recommendation on where we're at with physical distancing. And, you know, at the moment, as I think people have heard over and over and over again, we're in a fragile time for this, and this is not the time for a family gathering. And um, and hopefully we're doing much better as a province in terms of our ability to um, blunt the curve, uh, flatten the curve, and, uh, and we want to get out of it uh, without the experience of some really unfortunate other cities and places where it's very tragic. So... Um, it's, it's short-term pain for long-term gain here, I think.
0: So, the what-if conversations are really um, effective for those conversations. Uh, you know, like, kids are, everything's okay. However, if you were if got sick or if the baby got sick, what are those implications? And, and that often is is uh, an effective conversation. A uh, quick lit search on baby heartbeat um, at aren't considered reliable or effective and are actually have been considered dangerous um, where women were getting uh, inaccurate fetal heart rate um numbers and uh, actually end up having a stillbirth um so
5: no to apps. thank you tell us that one quickly okay so the next
2: question here is again related to ppe and uh, this this person is asking um if you have very limited PPE, what which, which would be the prenatal visits that you would deem more essential to, to see the patient in person, obviously, if you had to cut back?
4: So again, I think this is where it's important to understand which patient am I seeing. Am I seeing a patient who's asymptomatic and then there's actually no recommendation for any PPE for an antipartum visit uh, on a universal level? So you wouldn't need any PPE for that scenario it's washing your hands or disinfecting your hands, keep physical distance as much as possible, and try to shorten the time with the patient in the room. For example, if it's a new patient, try to see them beforehand uh, virtually to get the history. But there is no need for a mask on a universal recommendation level. That's, there's individual people who choose to do that, but there's a lot of conversation around how that is not a universal recommendation. And then if a patient were to be symptomatic, most um offices are not sent up to see them in their office for exactly the PPE reason. They would then um, have them be seen elsewhere.
3: Okay. It's just important to know that the health authority by health authority variability. So Vancouver Coastal Health has, is very different, and they are recommending use of PPE.
2: This, this question was about limited uh, access to PPE and wondering, which is, when, when should they, what, what are the most important business that they don't want to...
3: No, I mean, I think, I mean, others can jump in, you know, I think that's a very difficult question to answer because it has to be individualized based on the uh, patients, on the gestational age at the time that they are in the pandemic scenario. Um, We're hoping that we're going to get adequate PPE supplies as time goes by, so we're trying not to make compromised decisions strictly on that basis. Um, the reason for the limited visits is not, it's not a PPE conservation per se. It's more just reducing the number of close in-person contacts that maybe you can get away with. Um, but, um, but there is on the BCCBC website the minimal suggested um, visits that are based on evidence from the WHO um, that uh, you can see uh, and have a look at as guides.
0: I can, I can post a link um, in quick summary. Once in either 12 or 20 weeks, um, once at 26 or 30 weeks, and then uh, 34, 36, 38, and 40 weeks uh, for in-person appointments or what the uh, uh, BCCDC guidelines are, which are adapted from the WHO. Thanks, Jeanette.
5: So
2: the next question is, um, should we take any extra precautions for women who develop an interpartum fever? Does that make any any different way you'd approach that?
7: I can start and then you can fill in. But um, interpartum fever is a very common thing that happens for women in labor. And so we don't want to assume that because the woman has a fever that she's also got COVID. Um, you know there are multiple symptoms that we would be looking for. Um, primarily, we would be looking at white cell count and other signs of infection as our first go to for a for a diagnosis uh, for somebody with uh, fever in labor. Uh, we would not go straight to um, thinking that she's got COVID.
5: Okay, sure. I can just say it's a very active discussion right now in terms
3: of how we how we sort of essentially. Um, triage the woman in labor with the fever, whether it's a transient fever that may be related to other circumstances um, uh, versus a persistent fever that may be associated with clear uh, features associated with chorioamnionitis, or where, whether it's a high fever without a, a, a obvious chorioamnionitis, where early uh, non-specific COVID or other symptoms may be at issue. Certainly, if there's any hint of a respiratory component, you would flip any woman outside of COVID or in COVID into a could she also have pneumonia, influenza, something else? And there's a workup pathway for that. Um, but I think it's I, I think it's the um, the flag of fever should then start the 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 thinking process around, let's be really, really careful around what we think the etiology of the fever is. And in some cases, as COVID becomes more common, uh, COVID is going to have to come into the differential, but it's not going to be a simple, well, it must be COVID therefore. Um, but if you think she's got um, an infectious process that isn't diagnosed, then you're going to go into your infection control approaches and start your investigation.
2: Thank you. Here's a a question. I think you've sort of answered, but I'll ask it just to be sure. Um, Would you suggest that there be any more ultrasounds for growth assessment if someone has a COVID-positive, a a,
5: a mother has COVID-positive in pregnancy? Would that change in any way you're monitoring? Deb, would you want to answer that? Well, I think when we were first reviewing the
3: literature on this, um, there was, uh, at least from the Chinese literature, a suggestion of uh, significantly high rates of preterm birth and uh, some cases of uh, there was a stillbirth in a relatively small denominator and uh, intrauterine growth restriction. So there was a concern that even if this wasn't a congenital virus, was the infection potentially causing placental dysfunction? And with an abundance of caution, the suggestion was that we would consider going to the sort of high-risk protocol of monthly ultrasounds for growth and fluid. I think that as we are learning more about this and the American data starting to come out and so on, I think we can be um, uh, thoughtful about whether that's appropriate or not. Um, certainly if you've had a woman who's, who's been critically ill in pregnancy you're going to certainly put her into a different category and monitor her more closely. Um, but a mild case of COVID early in pregnancy may not need um, much in the way of additional monitoring. Um, but again, that's going to have to be for the moment a little bit of a case-by-case.
5: Case. Thank you. Okay, we're, we're getting close to the
2: end of the question, so, so someone's asking me because of my my uh, Hawaii-like background that, 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 that I put behind me because you don't want to see where I'm sitting, <laughs> wherever I am. But I'm just in my little room in my home. Um, uh, but thought that might be very calming to see, see that Hawaii background. Um, so be, before finishing tonight, um, I'd like to invite each of the panel members uh, the opportunity to share with you any final messages or advice they might like you to hear about before we end let me start. Can I start with you, Deb, if anything else you'd like to add?
5: Sure.
3: You know, I guess um, maybe just a little bit of a you know, bigger picture scenario. Uh, you know, what I, my observation is that this has been a really tough time for a lot of people, both in the healthcare arena and um, in the personal arena, people who are having to work in situations where they're anxious and worried people who can't work and are at home in sometimes not ideal circumstances. And I just think that we all need, this is not going to be a sprint race. It's going to be a marathon. And um, I think it's really time for us to try and support our coworkers, our family, to try and keep calm. Um, uh, This is not the time to get too caught up in um, the very anxiety provoking media and, um, Uh, uh, social, uh, uh, some of the uh, chat rooms and so on that are really sort of fomenting uh, anxiety. I think this is the time for us to stay calm, um, try and stay resolute. We're going to get through it, but we'll get through it together better um, if uh, we're just methodical and thoughtful and uh, and care about each other. So that's my message.
2: Thanks, Deb. And Regina?
4: Yeah, I I definitely would like to echo what Deborah has said. Um, For my end, it's a a really nice experience to see how, at least in my hospital, we're working together. It's a great interdisciplinary teamwork. Even if we have disagreements, we can work through them in a respectful way, Um, something that I'm very, very grateful for, Um, something I think that takes care to look after each other and and, um, work on these relationships so that they stay positive throughout these difficult times um, and that I I hope for most of us that we will experience some kind of solidarity in this together um, and don't feel like we need to figure it all out
2: ourselves. Thank you. Uh, Jeanette, what, what, any last thoughts?
0: Um, absolutely, echoing, echoing that it is it is a unique opportunity to really rally together and to highlight the importance of maternity care um, throughout, um, you know, there's this process, a lot of, a lot of um, information and, and approaches and, and reflection on maternity care has been coming to light that has often been overlooked um, during normal times. And, and that's uh, something that I think um, all of us working together can really highlight. So uh, there's so many lessons to be learned through this, how we're approaching this crisis and working together and adapting to meet the needs of our patients and still preserve that, is that patient autonomy and, and provider autonomy while working together um, to, to um, protect ourselves and, and protect our colleagues. Um, that um, it, it creates an incredible opportunity looking forward at what we're gonna be able to do together. Um, so that's that's one message is to to stay the course and and uh, don't forget about the patient within this um, and uh just to go also to go with the flow um, you know being compassionate with yourself um, I want to um, certainly highlight how amazing and incredible the the um, the the team um, at BC Womens is with, with Deborah around answering any questions and uncertainties. There's so many gray areas, it seems like it should be black and white, but there's so much gray. And, and call a friend, call, call around, ask for help. I think any of us on the call we are happy to answer any questions. Um, but um, there's, we're learning
5: more as we go and, and allow for, for that evolution to happen. Thank you. Um, Zoe?
6: Yeah, I mean, I just echo um, what has already been said, and uh, certainly, um, I'm sure I'm not the only one in appreciating the 7 p.m. cheer for essential healthcare workers. I also feel as though there should be a cheer for the families of essential healthcare care workers who are often working whilst looking after children, given the closure of schools. Um, so I think just, just uh, you know, I, I, it's difficult. It's a difficult position because... We feel fortunate to have a job, yet in doing our job, we're potentially putting our our family and people we're supposedly isolating with at risk. But I really feel as though um, the people who we are living with or or sharing our space with really do need that acknowledgement as well because without them, we couldn't do what we do.
2: Thank you. And lastly, Melanie, any last words?
6: Uh, I do. Um,
7: Just thinking about... Uh, something that Jeanette said in terms of sharing resources. Not only do we have all of our resources on the EPOC uh, for BC Women, but SOGC has opened up their guidelines for people, the alarm course, all of that content is now not behind a paywall it's now free and available of charge. Um, So there's lots of resources out there. Um, We're freely sharing ours and I'm happy to answer any questions. Um, Stephanie, I have a little
5: photo there. We should not anyways, I did have a picture of a nice wisteria tree uh,
7: just just I think to remember to to think about the beauty in in the world and not just get all caught up in this um, and then in the next one, Zoe talked about the seven o'clock um, cheer that goes up and there's somebody in my neighborhood who has a zalea, so every it goes off every night but I found this and somebody had stamped out thank you to healthcare workers in the snow and on the ice and I just thought that it was very telling. And uh just thank you to all of you who do this every day. So
2: thank you everyone. What what a uh, nice way to finish. So, so much positivity and a, a generous spirit I hear among you working together and and such great advice. Um, I'd like to express my sincere gratitude to the panel, Dr. Deborah Money, Dr. Regina Renner, Dr. Jeanette Boyd, Ms. Zoe Hodgson, and Ms. Melanie Basso, all very dedicated maternity providers, as you can see, also excellent educators who have taken the time from their very busy lives, heavy, critical, clinical, and other duties to answer your questions tonight. I'm sure you all really appreciate it. If possible, I, maybe we could bring them back again uh, to offer you more sessions like this. I also want to thank all of you for attending, and I hope this session has been of value to you. Please take a few minutes right now to complete the attendance and evaluation forms that were emailed to you uh, in order to, to obtain uh, study credits and also to provide uh, your feedback on tonight's webinar. Finally, I, I thought you might want to know again about some other webinars we're offering over the next... Uh, week or so in our COVID-19 webinar series, Uh, this this, uh, Thursday, April 9, one on uh, addictions, alcohol, opioid management, um, uh, lead presenter will be Dr. Lynette Reed. Uh, Then uh, a week from today, we're having the third uh, in our series on emergency and critical care uh, with a a team of specialists that turned into the first two, you'll, you'll know how how uh, powerful and, and uh, informative they all are in their various contexts. And then I mentioned earlier, too, we're going to have one a week this Thursday on pediatrics um, with uh, several uh, expert panelists uh, in, in pediatrics and family practice as well. So please uh, look, for, look, look for those if you're interested. And, and uh, so thank you and good night.
1: I'm also pleased to tell you about our two other shows on the UBC Medicine Podcast Network. The Metamorphosis Podcast was created by students for students, and it's long-form interviews with medical specialists about their careers, their passions, and their practice. And we hope that it's going to help med students in navigating their career and choosing a specialty. That's metamorphosis, spelled M-E-D, Our third show, Primary Care in a Pandemic, looks at the changes in primary care in B.C. during COVID-19. Doctors Morgan Price and Sarah Fletcher talk about ways primary care clinics can and are adapting to this crisis. They try to keep things real and practical so you can apply these ideas in your practices. Brought to you by UBC's Primary Care Innovation Support Unit, or ISU, in the Department of Family Practice. Thanks for joining us. And please tune in for the rest of our episodes.
5: This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network.